folks, welcome back. This is Elliot with the Poor Pearls Almanac here today, and Andy as well. Um, you can find us on Spotify, iTunes, and wherever you get your podcast. And of course, you can find us on Patreon. Remember that Patreon. If you're enjoying what we do here, and you'd like to help us cover some of the costs of hosting these podcast episodes. We don't explicitly offer any of our traditional content focused on the specific goals of this podcast to our Patreons in terms of limited access or anything like that right now. Knowledge is for everyone, but we have started a Patreon-only mini-series called The Prologues, during which we do some small critiques and joke about various ecological subject matters, like radioactive pigs and how to grow citrus fruit in Russia and, like, Siberia and, like, sub-zero temperatures. That was a crazy one. And don't forget the peach trees in Paris. Oh, yeah. The fruit, good one. The fruit walls fruit that walls. I built. That Elliot built. I built them. No, not personally. I wasn't alive. But what? You know, you weren't alive alive in the 17th century. I'm not supposed to tell people I'm immortal. Oh, that's like how I stay immortal. You are nothing. What? I still have my head, bro. You don't know the the Highlander rules. Come on. All right, off topic. We've also included clips of this entire series up on the Patreon as well. So if you want to hear some stuff about all of those episodes, go check it out. On top of this content, we've got stickers available, and we're including some footage from Andy's farm that sort of takes some of the theory that we talk about and puts it into practice. Or we can just watch him fail miserably and play around in the mud, because that's what it looks like to me. Yeah, that's mostly it. And if this is your first episode, we highly, highly recommend going back to the first episode of at least this series and catching up, since each episode springboards from the previous content. Today, we have a special guest, Dr. Dan Rubenstein. He's an ecology professor at Princeton University. We spent the episode chatting with him about looking at the science backing some of the principles of regenerative agriculture, as well as looking at some of the projects he's been involved with regarding creating cooperative farm systems in order to create more resilient food systems. Dr. Rubenstein, thanks so much for coming on to chat with us about this difficult topic. Tell me a little bit about your background and your work with local food systems. Well, I'm a behavioral ecologist. I study animals. In fact, I study many animals throughout my career, but I focus mainly on the equids, the wild horses, zebras, and asses that roam on um, grassland and savanna landscapes. And my work has brought me into contact with livestock herders, both commercial ranchers and pastoral people that herd livestock um, you know, for their families and for their well-being. And the animals that I study are routinely considered vermin. Every grass blade that a horse or a zebra or a wild ass eats, commercial rancher or pastors believes belong in the belly of their animal for increasing their livelihoods. So that brought me into farming. Awesome. Uh, from a different perspective than most people because I'm trying to maintain biodiversity on a landscape that is often shared with um, domesticated stock that consume the same resources that the wild animals that I study consume. And getting to know them, getting to know what mattered to them, understanding why they perceive the animals that I study as difficult, onerous vermin, brought me to understand that um, I needed to make my work more available to them. So we started doing some experiments to examine the relationship between livestock and wildlife. So in Africa, there's a thing called the grazing succession, which happens among natural wild species, that the zebras being big bodied and having a hindgut fermentation system, because most animals 
don't have cellulase, so they can't get the energy from the carbon bonds in the plant structural material. They can only get at the nutrients and the energy in the cells protected by the cell walls. They have chambers where microbes live and those microbes have cellulase. So those microbes can break down that structural carbon into energy. And bigger animals can subsist on lower quality food, which is full of structural materials. And so what happens on a natural landscape is that the hindgut fermenting big bodied species like zebras eat the stems and the straw and the good stuff, but they can live on the bad stuff. That opens up and changes the structure of the vegetation so that the other big species that are ruminants that have a different chamber for their uh, microbes that need higher quality food for the same weight, they now experience a landscape that has been improved, if you will, by the removal of the, of the tough fibrous material. They then eat that vegetation down and really let the new growth form, which feeds the smaller species like the gazelles. We call that a grazing succession. It's a form of mutualism, not a competition. And we said, maybe that's also happening on a landscape with cattle. So we did experiments where we put cattle and zebras together and we did them at stocking rates, the low stocking rate that commercial ranchers use and the high stocking rates that the pastoralists use. And we were able to demonstrate very nicely that in fact, the zebras eat the stems and the straw, change the structure of the, of the landscape, allow the cattle to get into the forbs that they really like, which are highly nutritious. The cattle grow better when they're sharing the landscape with zebras. And the zebras do better in part because the cattle reinforce the cropping that allows the vegetation to green up after rain. But they also, by the way, they feed with their tongues, grab the vegetation and strip it of the parasites that infect the guts of the zebras. And as a consequence, the zebra's health improves just in general. So the competition that's perceived, as long as grass is growing, is actually a mutualism where each species improves the ability of the other to survive. So we work with the ranchers and bring this evidence to them and they go, aha, maybe I have to rethink my relationship between my animals and the landscape and the wildlife that they share the landscape with. And so that got me thinking that in general, people's misunderstanding of the relationships between wildlife and the monitoring and modifying of a landscape needs to be better understood so that people can use it more efficiently for both sustaining their livelihoods, but also for maintaining biodiversity. So that's how I got into farming. Yeah, that sounds very similar to a lot of Alan Savory's work, where they've been working on intensive grazing models with cows and getting away from purebred stock and focusing on, I don't want to say rewilding cattle, but uh, making them more naturally selected for their environments so that they can have those relationships, those mutualist relationships with the other species in their community and to uh, be a part of that grazing pattern of intensive grazing that's quickly uh, rotationally grazed. Uh, it sounds like you guys did a lot of the legwork that seems to be lacking on that side of that regenerative agriculture scene. Right. So, so we, we've actually done a, a series of experiments to really look at the intensified grazing of cattle. So the first experiment that we did, we, we just let the cattle graze and business as usual, which means they walk around, they choose to eat what they want to eat, and they ignore the stuff that's lower quality uh, that they don't want to eat. Of course, with zebras, the zebras eat all of it. So the bad stuff vanishes and the good stuff is disproportionately there. But if a rancher's not going to tolerate much wildlife, 
how then can he make his cattle be sort of like a zebra? How can his farming of pure stock of cattle do to the landscape what the mixture does to the landscape? And that, that's where intensified rotational grazing, bunch grazing um, fits in. We call it holistic grazing because different farmers do different things, but we've done some experiments on that. And we've been able to find which parts of Savory's story are true and which ones are more myth. And the, the, the issue of chipping the, the, the soil, that, that, that doesn't apply because if you chip the soil at the surface, it just washes away. You lose your topsoil. And the real issue is what are you doing to the vegetation? How are you improving its growth? How are you maintaining the diversity, much like a diverse portfolio that you would have for Wall Street? And again, bunch grazing can do that because you're preventing the animals from choosing what to eat. So they eat the good stuff and the bad stuff. And we've been able to demonstrate in very controlled experiments that when you put um, a certain number of cattle at the same density and let them do what they want, as opposed to putting cattle in tight bunches and letting them intensively use a particular area, then move them the next day to another area and the next day to another area, that over a period of time, if they use the same amount of area intensively in sequence, as opposed to repeatedly using the same area to do what they want as they nibble around the edges and do their choosiness, we can show two things. One, that both systems lower the grass that's available. Okay, so cows do what they do, they eat the vegetation and they have a significant impact on that. But most importantly, those that were in bunched rotational systems denuded the really poor, tough, wiry, fibrous grass at a much higher rate than if the cows are free to move as they want. So bunching and rotation leads to intensive use, lack of choice, and leads to um, elimination of the bad grass. So the next rain give the preferred grasses that have been being outcompeted a chance to regenerate and start to take hold and replenish themselves disproportionately. And this is the big, this is the really interesting question. When you sit down with the pastoralists and say, here's my data, and you show them that the bunching and the rotation does have this long-term effect of improving the rangeland, their first question to you is, Professor, why should I force my animals to do something they don't voluntarily want to do, and I put them at risk making them eat the bad vegetation? Why should I do that for a long-term good? Now, remember, they see the world as highly unpredictable. They see the world as not being in equilibrium, and it's got droughts and, and booms. And so they say, why should I take on that extra risk? That's a really tough question to answer, but we found the answer is that when you bunch your animals and you force them to stay in a particular area, they don't walk very much. And so it's true, the numerator, the gain, the benefit, the cost curve, the benefit goes down in the sense that the ingestion rate is being depleted and is being lowered. And it also means they are eating disproportionately the vegetation that's gonna take the microbes longer to process. So the ingestion rate and the assimilation rate of energy and nutrients is going to go down. But the denominator has been decreased. The energy expended traveling also goes down. And so there really is no net loss immediately. Now, when you share that result with them, they go, aha. But again, 
do they believe you? And this is where working with people matters in the sense that we hire their children to be herders in our experiments. So the kids are seeing firsthand the results emerging, that the cows that are being bunched and, and rotated are gaining weight, despite what their fears were that they wouldn't be getting enough good food. And they're seeing that they don't have to work as hard in the sense that they don't have to push them on the landscape to get them enough food. And so they see the denominator shrinking as well. And that's how knowledge spreads. And that's how we change behavior. I have to ask, because now you've been talking about multi-species grazing. I do a lot of intensive multi-species grazing uh, with sheep, turkeys, ducks, and chickens. One of the things that I have a big challenge with and something that I've been personally trying to find an answer to really is figuring out the proper systems of order and things like that. Because if you look at, say, Mark Shepard, which you, I'm sure you're probably familiar with, he he's written a lot on multi-species grazing, but a lot of it is very vague. And he'll say, like, you should do turkeys after sheep. but And then it's kind of in vague terms as to why that makes sense. So I'm curious, in the research you've done, if you've come to any... Um, solutions if there are better orders of operation other than by like species with ruminants versus chickens and poultry and birds and things like that or if there is or if it doesn't really matter well i think it does matter we've done experiments we haven't published the results yet so um one of my uh postdoctoral fellows kenyon loves looking at the relationship between livestock and wildlife wilfred odati at uh egerton university in kenya and um, we did an experiment with cattle, donkeys as our surrogate zebras, and then we added sheep to the mix because most pastoralists now are substituting sheep for cows. And we did two experiments, and this will get at exactly the point you're, you're raising. We did one experiment where we set aside blocks and we put sheep in and cattle in and donkeys in, and we did them in various mixtures and orders to see how they changed the landscape. And then we looked at the growth rate of the sheep on the different plots that were 100% just sheep used, 100% just cattle used before sheep were added, 100% donkeys, and then cattle and donkey mixtures. And the sheep grew best on the plots that had the cattle and donkey mixtures first. So that would be, we're using donkeys as surrogate zebras because they have the same body plan, the same gut system, but we can watch them. They don't run away. And then we did a second experiment where we did these experiments in separate bins. And then we took down the walls, the fencing between them, and we let the sheep choose where they preferred to go. So we already knew they grew best on the plots that had been simultaneously being fed with sheep, uh, with cattle and, and donkeys. They chose that plot over all the other plots. So the answer to your question is it does matter, the order, and that the order fits with the natural processes of the grazing succession I was talking about. Because the sheep is the small, smallest bodied animal that's the equivalent to the Thompson's gazelle, the cow is sort of the wildebeest and the donkey is the zebra. And we've already seen that, that cattle and donkeys together facilitate each other. And the two of them 
can facilitate the small-bodied species that needs the highest quality food. And so between the two of them architecturally manipulating the vegetation, they open it up just exactly the way that will foster the small mouth, picky, nibbly sheep to gain their advantage on the landscape that's had very much of the vegetation cropped down to where only the sheep with their small mouths can get right down to the nub. So there is a logic to the order. Now I can't comment on adding poultry to the mix, but I would think that poultry to the mix would be at the end because they're gonna provide manure and they're gonna provide insects for the birds um, and they're gonna help fertilize the landscape in a way that will distribute the manure to grow next year's crop of grass even better, which would support all three. So I would probably put them towards the end in the succession. That's pretty much what I've been doing. It's funny, we were, I brought you on because I wanted to talk about food systems and instead we're talking about grazing because whenever somebody knows something about grazing, I just want to pick their brain. So I, I'm curious, before we get to what we actually were going to talk about is you had mentioned using donkeys. What what would be the um, the the food alternative to a donkey in a in a uh, food system that was trying to just use productive animals that could be harvested? Horses, if you if you had horses or donkeys on your farm, so you might use those as beasts of burdens, or you might have um, horses on your farm for leisure pursuits, for riding, for you could even make income off of that by letting people pay you to ride the horses and things like that. So so. I'd, you're putting in a wide mouth clipper because horses and equids in general have upper and lower incisors and bobbits don't. They've got the bony plate, so they feed differently. So you've got the clippers and they will come in and, and be able to survive on the low quality food and improve your rangeland first. So that I would, you know, if you have, if you have donkeys, if you have horses, I put them in first and then your cattle will thrive. And then if you've got sheep, put them in last. And have you done any work with pigs? No, I've never worked with pigs. Um, pigs are very omnivorous. They can eat almost anything, but they root things up. So if you're trying to turn your soil, then you might want to put pigs in rather than using a, a rototiller. Mm -hmm. Sure. Um, but there's disadvantages to turning your soil because you break up the root system and you take away the, the hyphae of the fungi, which are your nutrient hunters they're the ones that go out and bring in the nutrients to the plants mm -hmm. sure so uh all this kind of ties into this idea of food systems and how we think about where our food comes from and how we produce it and deliver it uh, so i do want to talk quickly about a class that you taught at princeton called agriculture human diets and the environment the concept of this class is kind of similar to the framework of this entire podcast really bringing in a lot of these complicated questions about how our food gets to us, how resilient those systems are, and kind of how climate change is going to play into what that looks like in the future, as well as topsoil depletion and all these other areas that ultimately we have to pay the price for, however that might be. So what inspired that class? And I guess what kind of outcomes were you really hoping to get from it? As I noted, I got into farming through the back door by looking at livestock and wildlife. And once I started to understand how farmers are set in their ways, but open to evidence that they see and believe unfolding before them, um, I started to say, 
I understand natural systems and manipulating natural systems in a shared context can be something that we could do to really improve the efficiency of farming and lower its environmental footprint. And this is going to be critical. So this is what one of the things that we teach in our environmental studies program in our, in our core nexus course is that how are you going to feed nine and a half billion people on this planet in a way that sustains the planet and provides not only food security, but nutritional security to every human on the planet. We're doing a good job at getting rid of food insecurity by producing grains and distributing them around the world. But grains are not going to be the answer to nutritional security. Dense vegetables are going to be important because they contain um, elements that we need. Um, there are going to be animal products that are needed too. Fish, for example, is strong in the omega fatty acids. Plants are not rich in those. So you do need a balanced diet. And so I start the course by looking at our hominid ancestors. They were hunter-gatherers. Hunter-gathering is a very efficient lifestyle. Um, in general, it's, it, it, it's mediated by sex difference because humans have a long gestation period and a long toddler period. And so um, mom is not going to be very efficient at going long distances quickly with a baby on the hip and a baby on the breast um, and a baby in tow. And so men tend to do the long distance maneuvering to get animal products and women um, move long distances, but they can move at a slower pace to go gather uh, tubers, nuts, rich in fats and, and, and other nutrients. And so sex division labor is natural in um, hunter-gathering societies. And between what men and women bring back is, is a very balanced diet. And as Richard Rangham noted, once we evolved the use of fire for cooking, that transformed us. Our jaw, jaw changed, our guts changed, and we became very proficient hunter-gatherers. And we solved our nutritional problem for very little effort. On average, the Hadza, which are modern-day hunter-gatherers, only take 15,000 steps per day. That's under 10 miles a day. Total effort. Pretty easy lifestyle. That's not much less than I do or more than I do. And that comes with a lot of health benefits for sure. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And there's time for socialization, right? So they're very healthy societies. The family is very good, but there's not a lot of calories in that food, a lot of protein. And humans in general have a target of 14% protein. And we prioritize protein. We, we, focus on never dropping below that. Um, and that's one of the reasons why, if you're trying to lose weight, the South Beach diet works because it's so protein rich. You will meet your protein requirement and stop eating long before you get to your 2000 calories per day. So you'll lose weight. Similarly, if you live in areas where you're eating mostly pre-processed food, you're going to not get much protein and you're going to keep eating and eating and eating until you get to your 14% and probably taking in five, 6,000 calories per day. So you put on weight. And so we know humans prioritize protein and many other animals do not all, but most, most do as well. And so the question I pose to the students is why did hunter gathering disappear and farming take over? And it has, it, it, it has to do with the fact that farming will generate calories because where farming took place initially was in special ecotones where you still could hunt and gather, okay, around the estuaries of our big rivers, the Nile, the Yellow River, and the Tigris Euphrates. So you could still get shellfish. The animals migrated through so you could still hunt them. But 
all of a sudden this water brought nutrients down. The crops on the lowlands were there. You start harvesting the crops and eating those seeds. And then you start selecting for seeds that are big. And you start selecting for plants that don't shatter so that they don't spread their seeds until you want them. So Jared Diamond talks about this in his book on guns, germs, and steels, which is what the students read. Mm -hmm. And farming is pretty easy early on because you're starting to select for crops with the traits that you want. And you get a lot of calories. And calories means you're going to have a lot of babies. So the, so the human productivity rate goes up. And that starts to displace hunter-gatherers from their landscape. And that's why farming spread. But farming at that point now starts to lead into drudgery. Because the easy pickings on these really rich, fertile estuaries is no longer the case as you move more and more far afield, which means now you have to get into moving night soil and nutrient enriching the soil and having high labor leads to slavery, leads to inventions of animals as beasts of burden. So farming goes through many, many changes. And if you're not familiar with Ruth DeFries's book on the, the big ratchet, she talks about how farming is really a response to the ratchet, which allows population growth to go up, which causes problems. And just before the hatchet falls, we invent something to then have another ratchet. Mm -hmm. So we keep getting more and more inventive and more and more productive. And, and that's allowed the human population to grow. But as we hit nine and a half billion people, how are we going to farm? So I give the historical antecedents of why farming won and why it was so effective and why our inventiveness keeps it going. But now we're on another cusp of having to feed nine and a half billion people. And that means we're gonna to have to have more intensive farming, more regenerative farming going forward. So we spend a lot of time now talking about how you do farming that's going to be more efficient and maintain biodiversity so you can get the free ecosystem services and improve livelihoods and lifestyles for everybody. And that's one thing that we try to touch on a lot with this podcast. And we're talking around it a lot, but people's relationship with um, food and with nature. Andy, I think we talked about um, in a previous episode, we reference man and nature and not man in nature. And that slight difference in the phrasing kind of points to what you were talking about, the hunter-gatherers before, that was man in nature. And then after agriculture comes comes around, it's man They're trying to conquer right, nature almost. Right. They're trying to basically exert their will over nature so that it goes along with... That's right. Yeah, you're, you're, you're right. I mean, early on, when we made the transition from hunter-gathering to farming, farming was a small impact on the landscape because there weren't many of us. Mm -hmm. And we were at the vagaries of nature. Nature caused droughts, caused destitute. And if you look at history, you've got interregna between like the early kingdom, the middle kingdom and the empire in Egypt. In between were periods where hunter gathering took over again, when the barbarians won, when there was a collapse. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so there's periods in history when hunter gathering replaces farming and then farming comes back. But as time grows, our use of nature goes up and we're trying to control nature. I mean, that's what the green revolution is. We grow crops that don't fall over. We grow shorter crops so that more of the grain can be harvested and not lost. We invent ways to become more efficient. We created artificial fertilizer 
to get around the problem of where was all the nitrogen in the soil that the plants need for growing themselves. We figured out how to do this cheaply. And now we have excess. When people say, well, it's so cheap. If I put a little bit more, I should get more productivity. Well, most of that washes off. It goes into the rivers. You get algae blooms and you get dead zones in the oceans, right? That's the excess. But that's largely because people think incorrectly about a little bit more is going to be better. So they're wasteful. And so what we try to do is have efficient farming where you use knowledge, you monitor what's going on, and you add judiciously what the plants need at the right time. We saw that was the case with these grazing successional changes. And so we can learn lessons and apply them for judicious interventions, non-wasteful interventions, to make the efficiency of farming um, more, increase the efficiency of farming and the intensification to give us the yields that we need without having to bring more and more pristine land into farming. Absolutely. And I think that also um, in these conversations, I don't think it makes sense to ignore the role of wild food in our diets and that we need to start considering that as uh, something that should be a function of how we uh, live. And I think not only is it something that we need in terms of our building those relationships with the environment, but as a supplement and for us to have some management of um, the systems that we've thrown out of whack. I know around here, um, deer overpopulation is a huge issue. And if we didn't hunt as much as we do, uh, there'd be a lot of deer starving to death and depleted landscapes. And I think there's probably a need for more of that. And um, I, as I know we talked before we started recording a bit about the role of government in how it's impacted, how our food systems are operated, and the the challenges of uh, incorporating wild foods into our diet because of the way the requirements are in terms of processing of wild game and things like that, that you can't sell it on shelves because it has to be killed in a approved slaughterhouse and things like that which uh, further convolutes our relationship with nature and uh, I think really understanding our place within it. You're absolutely right. I mean, we, we, we could make venison more available to people and that would be you know, a way of, of solving our problems of over nibbling by the deer, providing protein, um, and you could subsidize it for poor people that can't afford protein you know, that, that have been basically living on processed foods. But again, we need new regulations, new ways to open that up. And that's going to just require educating yeah. both the public that venison is good and also to lawmakers to make it easier to, um, to get those, those, those goods out to the public. Yeah. To go back to kind of what we've been talking about, these food systems, I do want to talk about how you've been working to try to creatively solve some of these problems that surround us, especially what we saw coming up with COVID and how we saw very quickly our food systems not be able to deal with the the repercussions of a system where people were required to stop working or buy food in advance and how quickly, um, even today, it, it, right now it's the end of March, and if you go onto a Walmart, there's going to be food on the shelves, but you'll notice that, you know, the box of wild rice, they only go back maybe two or three boxes. There's never a full shelf anymore. So there's enough, but we're just barely keeping up. I really want to talk about what you've done in terms of the New Jersey Dairy Farmers Project that you were involved with and uh, how you think that's a model of what we could do in the future. So the pandemic um, exposed the, the flaws in our 
food supply system. We all take it for granted. You know, when you want food, you go to the supermarket or you go to the little boutique shop in, in town and you buy what you want. And most people don't give second thought to where it came from. If they do, they want it to be local. They prefer it to be organic if they can afford it um, because of, of health benefits. But most people will just say, there's food, I buy it, I go home. You know, to them, meat is not from a living animal. That's a problem. It's in the styrofoam with the plastic over it, right? And they take it for granted that it's going to be there. Well, the pandemic exposed how fragile our uh, food supply chain is. All of a sudden, in the dairy farmer case, um, milk was still being produced. The cows were grazing. They were making milk. And all of a sudden, there was no market for the milk. The, the supermarkets needed more milk because people weren't getting their milk by buying coffee with milk at Starbucks. They wouldn't, their children weren't getting the milk in school in the small packages that they got. They were now at home and the milk had to be supplied to them. And all of a sudden the shelves are bare and yet milk was being thrown away because it couldn't be packaged in ways quickly enough to change and meet where people were getting their milk from because individual dairy farmers were making arrangements with, with purchasers who were providing supply of a specific sort to a specific specialty. And all of a sudden, when those specialties dried up, when we were in lockdown, the only available price to get milk was at the supermarket. And it wasn't geared up for a lot of that milk to go to new packaging to get on the shelves of the supermarket. So we exposed a system of specializations that was not resilient to a shock. What happened was a lot of local suppliers started to rejigger what they were selling. So most of your community-sponsored agriculture is about agriculture. You're starting to um, get crops, you sell them at a food stand or people come and they get a box of stuff that's already pre-selected for them, or they get to choose from the shelves at the, at the farm stand, which put in the box to go home. Well, these local nodes now became the new networks. The farmers had networks to meat producers. So some of the local farmers started to bring in um, meat and sausages. Others started to bring in alcohol. Um, whiskey from other local areas. And so they started to diversify what they were offering because they could act quickly. They had networks of other local suppliers. And so they became nodes in a way with a little territorial mosaic. And people that had abandoned the community-sponsored agriculture came back to it because they trusted it. They knew it was there. Now, why they abandoned it, maybe price was too high because Americans only spend about 10% of the income they earn on food. And most local markets, organic farms, are at the upper end in selling produce. And so if your budgets are a little bit tight, um, you're going to try to find ways to cut your investments on things you need so you have money for the things that are the luxuries that you want to enjoy life. And so you go to the supermarket. And a lot of the business was weaned away from the local nodes. But during the pandemic, they came back that then gave money to local nodes to diversify. And we saw a rewiring of the network, which made the system resilient. And each of the little local areas grew. Their profits went up. They had happy customers. The customers had diversified um, you know, food bags. 
Um, the question now is, will they stay with the local nodes, which are slightly more expensive, or will they gravitate back to the supermarkets to save on the cost of supplying food to their family? The jury is still out on that. But at least we now know how to build networks of food supply that can rewire quickly so it can adapt and therefore not have the hiccups and the collapses and tears that we saw during the pandemic. I think that was the, the main failing that really struck me. It wasn't so much that the shelves were bare. I could see um, runs on a supermarket being a thing at the beginning of a pandemic. That wasn't super surprising. But the part that really did surprise me was the inability to pivot and serve markets that were being underserved because with a large superstore or supermarket like that, you would feel that they, they would be best to make the most money by providing products for markets that are underserved. And when they don't have the ability to do that, it kind of takes away the awe of the supermarket being a place that you can go to in one-stop shop. Yeah, or even the awe of uh, market efficiency, uh, you know, scaling, scalability as an ultimate good because there's that trade-off that I think we has been under uh, under considered in a lot of these developments um, in terms of scalability. You know, you've got these massive farmers who are doing something that they're so specialized and so large, and their equipment is designed specifically to produce X amount of whatever it is a day, and they can't change those systems to produce more or less. They're specifically designed for what they believe their niche in the market is. Right. And uh, right. that got exposed very quickly. And like we said, that's a big piece of why they still haven't been able to catch up, despite the fact that now it's been a year and, and the shelves are they're slowly getting there, but they're still not where they should be. And you would think with the scale of food production we have, that wouldn't be something hard to do. But we're still living with those failures. I think this points to this idea of cooperative economics, of um, using these co-ops as a way to provide food in a way that's nimble enough to meet the demands of a community, um, with the trade-off being a slightly larger price, but at what benefit? In I think that's something especially important to consider uh, as we deal with things like climate change that'll inevitably drive more events. I read something on the internet that had phrased COVID as being like the preamble to what climate change is going to be. And this is a good uh, wake up call of what the future is going to look like. It might not be a virus, but there is going to be various incidences like this that'll break up those supply chains or make them, uh, they'll need to be more resilient in order to deal with those challenges. And I'm not sure if they really can be. I think they can if, if they if they rewire in, a, in an interesting way. So I mean, you raise an interesting point about the higher price. What if we consider that higher price like insurance? You know, you buy insurance for your car in, in order to pay a small deductible to protect you against the whopping cost if someone hits you or you hit someone else. And in a way, by paying a slightly higher price to keep the local nodes and those networks vibrant, they protect you against recurring shocks. Now, if the shocks are once every 100 years, you're not going to pay the insurance. But if the shocks start to occur more frequently due to pandemics and or climate change disrupting the, the supply chain, you might be willing to keep the local networks that get you through these difficult periods going by paying the slightly higher price on a regular basis, which is what insurance is all about against the catastrophe. And the more shocks 
create more catastrophes, you're more likely to see people patronizing the networks. But it's going to take a change of awareness that that it's now versus the future, the trade-off of, 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 of what your true costs are going to be. Yeah. And I think that speaks to having a, a multiplicity of uh, means of providing things like food uh, and that we shouldn't rely on specifically um, a handful of corporations or facilities to provide that. Even if they can do it more efficiently, there should always be kind of a backup plan, which at the very least, these cooperatives can kind of exist as. Exactly. So we just finished a study on community-sponsored fisheries um, through a node called Fishadelphia. Um, as it implies, it's in downtown Philadelphia. And the purveyor that created it did it for, for food justice. Um, it was to reach inner city people to give them high quality uh, seafood um, of all races and all economic values. And she has a PhD. Um, she was from Princeton University, her postdoc. And, um, and what she did is she created this, this network of fishers that were local, regional and more global, which gave her some buffering, these couplings at the supply side. And then she created distributions with students using the schools as nodes for people to come and pick up the fish, shellfish, fin fish, whatever. And much like a, um, a you know, community sponsored agriculture, much like an organic farm. And what happened during the pandemic was they couldn't come to the schools, they couldn't aggregate. All of a sudden, how do you then feed the public? She diversified and let every student set up on their own porch. So again, a distributed network was created. And in fact, business boomed. They reached more people than having to come to the school. So the first rewiring was to change the outflow, the network of sales. Then the inflows became a problem because the fishers started to sell at the dock for the same reason. People could flock there sort of haphazardly and it gave them some ability to sell because the purchases no longer had markets, the big, the big buyers. So they took it on their own to sell locally, which meant Philadelphia lost. So she had to rewire and not only just deal with her local fishers, but to go more regionally. And it turned out that the regional ones were harder, so she was stuck with the more local, but then she lost the diversity of inputs. So finfish dropped, shellfish increased. Well, not everyone eats shellfish. So the consumer had to either change its sort of um, ability to be wide ranging. And so she learned that from our analysis, how the network has to have redundancy, both within regions and diversity across regions to be able to ensure when there's, a, when there's a shock that enough flows come in to meet the needs which are diversified of the many publics that were using the fish. So again, rewiring the ability to anticipate that certain links are going to evaporate and that others are going to have to form quickly. And so, so some proactive pre-planning and rewarding a diversified group of suppliers and a diversified way of distributing allows the network to become much more efficient and self-sustaining. So we learned that from our analysis. And again, the pandemic revealed the problems with the current supply system. 
Yeah, and I think a lot of this points to the benefits of erasing a lot of the middlemen in a lot of these food systems. You know, that direct sale component seems to be a benefit for almost everybody in terms of getting food more quickly throughout pandemics. And um, it seems like everyone that I know, at least in farming, seems to actually be doing financially better this year than um, in previous years. I think that's right. Another another trick that some of the farmers are, are, are doing is the network we've been talking about is a lot of horizontal connections. They're also vertically integrating. And so one of the farmers that I work with um, raises um, sheep. And to ensure that he has outlets for his sheep, which is you know very high quality, free range, grass fed um, sheep and lambs, he has his own restaurant and his own market and his own cafe. So he's vertically integrated. He's got three different outlets to sell the meat. And some of the other farmers have made their farms day outing events. So you can come and pick apples in the morning. The kids can have apple pie, play with the animals. So it becomes a day out as people spend money. And so this gives a diversified income to the farmer to keep them going, but it allows mom and dad to entertain the kids and to fill the shopping basket. So again, it's a, it's a, it's a diversification of outlets. I call vertical, vertical integration, which is making some of these local nodes stable. Um, one of the films that I have my students watch is called 100,000 Beating Hearts. I don't know if you've watched it. I haven't, no. It's on YouTube and you should watch it. And it's about the collapse of farms in Southwest Georgia, how whole towns go bankrupt. And this one farmer who comes from multi-generation of farming, um, he and his, his grandfather and his father before him were always profitable. But as the way he puts it, the children didn't want to take over farming. They didn't enjoy it. Um, and he started rethinking about how to farm. And he then went into the type of farming we've been talking about, where he moves the chicken coops to move the manure, where he lets the cattle graze the, the land and then puts the chickens on. And he now has the most bald eagles in the state of Georgia on his land. And most importantly, he's rebuilt the town because he had markets to sell the food and it makes jobs for not only the farmers, but also for sellers. And he bought up a lot of the deteriorating housing stock and has fixed it up and provides it to the workers for rent. So he's making money, but the town is rebuilding. So yeah. it's a very interesting movie to look at, um, to get an idea of how. And one of the neighboring farmers said, well, that's great that you're doing this, but you're not going to feed the world. And the quote I like best in the film is said, no one asked me to feed the world. I want to feed my neighborhood. Right. Yeah. And I think that's, the main thing that's kind of being spotlighted by this conversation is ke keeping the food local. Um, it's taking away that view of how we see markets as being in competition. And it's sort of putting in that mutualistic relationship that we had talked about. I think it might have been before we hit record. But it, it's bringing in that mutualistic relationship from the farmer and his community um, so that everybody can benefit from it and thrive in other places and compete in other places and other markets. Yeah, the money isn't just going to some uh, investment club or investment firm that's bought up all these farms or whatever. You know, you, the money's not being siphoned out of the community. It's staying 
within the community. Like that example you gave, it's uh, helping revitalize those communities in that process. Few flip sides to this. I mean, so we're talking. So far, we're talking from a middle class perspective. Sure. So now let's let's ask if I live in the barrio and I'm stuck with one shop, a Seven Eleven or something. Right. My choices are very limited. You know, the meat I'm going to get is from you know beef jerky. Um, how do we increase the diversity of foods? for people on WIC, food stamps, essentially. And their markets that are diversified can be beneficial. And a lot of these communities don't have supermarkets. And so thinking about how to increase the diversity of good foods for people that normally are on the run, doing two jobs, coming home to get your kids off to school from being out all night, you stop at McDonald's and bring a fast meal home. It's cheap. It's quick. You want to be with your kids. High in calories, low in nutrition, right? So, so we, so let's think about food justice as well. The other side is local is really important and it will cut down transportation costs, especially since we're urbanizing. Fewer and fewer people are living outside of cities. So you've got to get the food into cities and you're not going to do it with, um, you know, town gardens. In, in urban centers, they're too densely packed and, and the cost of land is really highly valuable. Um, so you're gonna have to bring food in and local has a, a smaller footprint in many cases than, than, than transported foods. Although if it comes by rail, the cost of transport's pretty, pretty low. But the flip side of this is, what about that farmer in Mexico or that farmer in Kenya? I want some of my income, my, my expenditure to go to feed to give those people money for their livelihoods and to let their children have good nutrition. And so local should not be the only component that matters. We, we're in an integrated a planet and, and how to get ways to give other people's opportunities to join the, the lifestyle that I have. Mm-hmm. Sure. And, you know, you can look at someplace like the Zapatistas and their um, coffee co-ops as a, a really good model where they do grow a majority of their own food and they have a very specific product that they are able to outsource that doesn't take away from the diversity of the biological community in those regions. And I think this kind of points to this idea of localizing and owning some of that localization. So we've talked a lot about, you know, raising sheep and cattle and things like that, as well as that the local like hunting and uh, those other food systems. But I think what gets lost in a lot of these conversations about uh, relocalizing is the utilization of things that are have been lost in our food systems. So things like pawpaws, you know, rare nuts. We forget that there are a lot of roots that are edible in the northeast of the United States that the indigenous people had utilized as a food source. So there's a lot of things that we can use as those exports that are uh, tied to our local diversity and um honor that heritage. And uh, I think like the Zapatistas is a really good example of that. But I I do think that's a a key component of how we globalize without uh, monotonizing our food system. Mm -hmm. Right. Globalizing can diversify our food system and ensure niche products that have high value. um, Exactly. Elsewhere. And, And the trick is to do it so that it's high quality and that it's desired. You know, when I grew up, food was seasonal. Well, now it doesn't have to be. I can have 
mandarins or tangerines as they used to be called or satsumas year long because I can get them from the season south of the equator versus north of the equator in alternate times of the year. And so I can maintain a, a very diverse diet. And as long as I do so, cognizant that I'm delighted to be able to help farmers elsewhere. And if the carbon footprint's a little bit bigger doing that, I'll trade that off. I'll try to then reduce my carbon footprint some other way by eating meat that is rebuilding the soils rather than um, you know, and that'll scrub out the carbon dioxide. So, so there's ways to think globally, act locally, but in your equations, try to balance the costs so that your footprint gets lower and lower over time. That's yeah. the name of the game. Yeah, for sure. Um, I, it reminds me a lot of the, the concept of donut economics, where you want to be at that level. Uh, you don't want to be in the middle of the donut where you're uh, living a lower quality of life, but you're within that beltway between living either similar to how we are, or maybe a little bit less or a little bit more, but within the scope of what the ecology can support. And that's that's that trade-off of supporting um, marginalized groups and regions across the globe while also trying to do things that are better for the environment locally. Um, you know, our, the idea isn't to just ultra-nationalist, ultra-local, like we're closing up all the walls and nothing's coming in or out. Uh, that's not how nature works anyway. And, and that's part of how we have to think about our food systems. So when we started the conversation how did I get into teaching this course on agriculture, human diets, and the environment? And I asked one question at the start of class is, how are we going to feed nine and a half billion people by 2050? I'm not going to be around in 2050. You, the students, will be. And you're not going to be a single student. You're going to have families and children. How are you going to make decisions, personal, from your pocketbook, and at the voting booth in terms of the policies that are going to shape the food system of tomorrow's world, because the food system has huge impacts on biodiversity, ecosystem services, and climate change because of its impact on, on, on greenhouse gases. And the answers are not known. We're doing experiments. We're getting information. They apply to today. And my goal in the course is to give students a grounding in the multiplicity of conflicts and trade-offs that are going to persist into the future. We have some indication of how to deal with them today. So that'll be their past experiences. And then they can use those as benchmarks for bringing in new knowledge based on what they've learned and how to think about parsing a problem into a question that can be answered to make the decisions for tomorrow. Yes. And so that's why I teach the course. That's how I teach the course. The examples we've been talking about are part of the discussion, part of the evidence that uses thinking and data today. And it's why I have them do an analysis of data from farms that use different farming techniques so that they can see how you use evidence to compare farming style A versus farming style B in making squash or leafy vegetables. Selling strategies, my organic farmers all sell differently. Some use a traditional CSA where you come with a box, you paid for one box or two boxes in your pre-advance. Others do it with a script. 
You give $500, they give you $700 a script to go pay to buy foods of your choosing at the farm stand in front of the farm because he's also selling to corporates that are coming by from local industry. But you get a discount because he's inflated your buying power with the script. Different farmers do things differently. We look at waste. The two systems will have very different waste impacts. And so we can have students ask questions about waste. We can have students ask questions about productivity drip irrigation, different fumigation methods in organic farming to keep insects down. So they, they can choose anything they want, but they look at one small slice of the problem, they analyze it and share it at a symposium, and that gets them thinking. They take ownership of data, it forces them to ask a question, and teaches them how to answer a question. So I think all this points to this kind of common thread around that we've lost a relationship with our food in a lot of ways and that we're trying to find it again. And some of that is part of that scaling component that it's not really possible to know your local cow all the time or where that beef came from, as you gave, for examples, with um, especially uh, poorer communities that might struggle to uh, even afford the foods that are healthy for us, and that we need to find some ways to make those relationships available again, regardless of class. Well, one of the things we're trying to do is bring students from urban centers out to the farms to work with suburban kids who live amongst the farms who are just as disconnected from farming as the urban kids are. They just have a different disconnect um, and let them see what food really is, where it comes from, how hard it is to make it, how ownership matters um, and how different styles produce food in different ways. Talk to the farmers, talk to the laborers. The owner of the farm is different from the person that's working daily on the farm. Now, most owners do work on the farms in New Jersey as well as, as, as their laborers do, but they've got executive decisions to make. They have to do the bookkeeping. They have to get the food out on the stands for marketing. So they, they do things slightly differently. But the seeing, internalizing goes back to what we do in Kenya. When we do our new herding style, we hire the children of the herders because that's going to make the information flow back to mom and dad to talk about it. Ideally, you would then be able to talk about the kids will go home. I did this. How about this food? Could we try this food? But the trick is, 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 is lower the barrier of entry by partnering and sharing information, make people aware of what options are there, identify what the barriers are, the hurdles are to be able to use that type of food in a productive way to improve health, and then try to reduce those hurdles so that it's easier for people to try something new. And that's where the humanities come in. That's where the social sciences come in, the natural sciences and engineering. That's why when you deal with undergraduates, courses that are interdisciplinary are critical because you get people from different walks of life showing the skills that they have to try to identify by working together how you can overcome some barriers that a scientist may not see, but a humanist does. And that awareness is also part of the solution. Um, so is there anything else you wanted to chat about? Uh, anything that we didn't cover that you thought would be, that maybe we just didn't think of that, uh, you think is really interesting? No, I think, I think we've covered, you know, most of the issues, you know, it's from, you know, the, the issue is it's from farm to fork. And we often think of agriculture as just the farming side. That's key. But to get from the farm to the plate is really a challenge. So for example, where does waste occur in the, in the Western world? It occurs in your refrigerator. 
we're really good at cutting, packaging, distributing to the supermarket, and then you buy too much. And it sits and you throw it out. In the developing world, the waste doesn't occur in the refrigerator. It occurs on the farm. The food sits and the rodents get it. A fungus gets it, aflatoxin and peanut butter. Then it falls off the truck. It sits at the distributor and it gets rots. So by the time it gets to the market, there's been a lot lost. And then at the market, it could sit. And then it gets unappealing. People don't buy it. It gets thrown away. And it can't even be reused for compost because it's now waste and it's garbage. And so waste pervades our food system. We don't even pay attention to it. And that's about a third of the energy loss. And you know, if you're trying to feed nine and a half billion people, fix that. Okay, but, it, but, but, but you have to identify where the problem is and dealing with um, speed of transport and safety of transport in the developing world needs to be increased. Governments have to invest in roads. They have to invest in secure markets with refrigeration. They haven't done that. And we need to make portion size such that when we sell things, the discount is still not to buy more of it, but, but the unit price go down, so you buy just what you need. It's one of the reasons that a lot of the millennials like Food Direct, which you think is wasteful, but in fact, they use computerized systems to reduce their, their tracking, their energy use and the greenhouse gases, and the portions, there are no leftovers. And everything comes with a recipe. It's easy and it's not wasteful. And so we need to rethink some of the things we ignore in a food supply system. We concentrate mostly on the agriculture, land sparing, land sharing, intensification, so we don't bring land that should stay wild back into farming systems, all true. But there's low hanging fruit elsewhere that we're not paying as much attention on. And I think if, if we could do that, that alone will save us probably 20 to 30% of our increasing needs, because what we will do is make sure everybody gets something without waste. And would you think it's fair to say that these systems that we are trying to put in place, it would be smarter to focus on longevity and resilience rather than perpetual profitability? Yes, I do. I do. But every farmer wants to make enough money. And so, so there's going to be pressure for the farmer who lives on very small margins to be able to earn a, a good living. Um, so we do want to figure out a way to make sure that the farmer is supporting his or her family. But we don't have to worry too much about going up the food chain to corporate profits. Right. So, so you know, everyone deserves some return on their investment, but it doesn't have to be obscene. And the trick is, how do we do that? and have a diversified array of foods that are healthy for people to purchase without breaking the bank so they have money to have fulfilled lives. I mean, it's very complicated, but um, an understanding of how many people are involved in a food system, from the farmer, to the distributors, to the processors, to the next set of distributors, and then the consumer, once we understand that they're all connected, then there are ways to work it out, I think. I'm the optimist, so that we can get more efficient and efficiency, not only in terms of profitability, but in terms of environmental friendliness. It's funny you said that you're an optimist because I was going to say, it sounds like there's a lot of hope in terms of uh, opportunity for us to improve our systems and 
make them more resilient without having to completely throw away everything that we've invested in uh, in terms of how we grow our food. And uh, I honestly, I have a million other questions, but uh, I don't want to keep you forever. <laughs> but I believe in awareness and agency, right? And so we can increase awareness and we have to improve agency. Thank you so much. This has been a really interesting and exciting talk. There's a lot of people that are listening that um, are into regenerative agriculture, these multi-grazing systems, food in general, in terms of how we're going to make it more sustainable. And uh, I think they're going to really appreciate this conversation. As always, if you enjoyed this episode and this interview, please give us a review on iTunes, which heavily impacts our outreach to new listeners and helps to continue bringing on new and exciting guests. We appreciate your support. We hope you enjoyed this conversation. Thanks for joining us on the Poor Pearls Almanac. This is Andy. This is Elliot. Later, nerds. <laughs>